In a world where uncertainty reigns supreme, where shadows of chaos dance at every turn, one truth emerges unyielding. Preparation is not a luxury, but a lifeline. Behold the Wellness Company, a beacon of readiness amidst the tempestuous seas of fate. Envision a sanctuary of tranquility, where the tumult of unforeseen medical crises finds no purchase. The Wellness Company's Medical Emergency Kit stands as a bastion of assurance, a fortress of resilience against the unseen foes of health. Within its sacred confines lie the tools of salvation. Ivermectin, to ward off the insidious whispers of disease. Emergency antibiotics, to quell the raging storms of infection. Antivirals, to vanquish the relentless tides of contagion and more. The Wellness Company Medical Emergency Kit is not merely a collection of supplies, it is the embodiment of preparedness itself. Crafted by the hands of esteemed healers led by luminaries such as Dr. Peter McCullough, Dr. James Thorpe, Dr. Harvey Risch, and Dr. Drew Pinsky, this kit stands as the pinnacle of safety, the zenith of prevention. These truth-seeking doctors have forged a testament to vigilance, a testament to the unwavering pursuit of well-being. Embrace the certainty that comes from being armed against adversity. Embrace the Wellness Company, for in its embrace lies the promise of resilience, the promise of a brighter tomorrow amidst the chaos of today. Don't wait for the next crisis to strike. Visit twc.health forward slash strange planet and use promo code strange planet for an exclusive 10% discount. Prepare today and rest easy tomorrow. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Have you ever wondered why we call French fries French fries? or why something is the greatest thing since sliced bread? There are answers to those questions. Everything Everywhere Daily is a podcast for curious people who want to learn more about the world around them. Every day, you'll learn something new about things you never knew you didn't know. Subjects include history, science, geography, mathematics, and culture. If you're a curious person and want to learn more about the world you live in, just subscribe to Everything Everywhere Daily wherever you cast your pod. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. On this episode, part one of a two-part conversation on near-death experiences, the Shroud of Turin, and the limitless potential of humanity. The pattern of the stain and the serum tells a story that can be read by a, a forensic pathologist looking at the cloth. And it's been discovered that this cloth once wrapped the recently deceased body of a man who had been tortured. He had been whipped by two assailants and he had had a cap of sharp objects placed upon his head, such as thorns may have been, for example. And he had been crucified. He'd been crucified through the feet and also, interestingly, through the wrists. I want to welcome a brand new sponsor to Conspiracy Unlimited, and I couldn't be more proud to be associated with the good people at Hero Soap. It's owned by veterans, and their products 
are outstanding. Their soaps contain no chemicals, dyes, or fragrances, and they come in these really cool resealable packages. So you can take your soap with you on the road instead of using those gross hotel soaps or take it camping. I'm using the Peppermint Cool Soap, and the moment I started lathering up, I felt a cool, refreshing, and tingly wave wash over me. I felt more clean, more refreshed, more alive. And not only does my body feel refreshed, I feel good on the inside, knowing that the Hero Soap Company supports veterans. Sign up for the hassle-free monthly auto ship, and you'll never run out of quality natural soap again, and you'll save 10%. Plus, for every soap purchased through the subscription, one soap is sent to deploy troops around the world for free. If you want to get clean and feel refreshed and support veterans all at the same time, check out Hero Soap at HeroSoapCompany.com. HeroSoapCompany.com. Look for the banner ad at strangeplanet.ca slash conspiracy show and in the episode notes for this podcast. Hero Soap. Let freedom clean. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. Pursuing the truth wherever it leads. Exposing evil and corruption and the secret machinations of powerful elites. Revealing the high strangeness beneath the surface of our supposed reality. Coming to you from his studio beneath the stairs. Here's Richard Serrett. Welcome to your Monday. Spring is in the air. Can you feel it? Can you smell it? All I know is spring training is well underway down in Florida, and that means the start of the baseball season. It's imminent. And of course, this past weekend, we turned the clocks ahead one hour. That's daylight savings time. You know, a lot of people are upset by switching the clocks back and forth in the spring and fall. I always say, don't worry about it. And remember the wise words of comedian Stephen Wright. Daylight savings time is a fad. I give it six months. Dr. Andrew Silverman is on the line from England to discuss how the image of a crucified man ended up on a piece of linen cloth and what that has to do with near-death experiences and human consciousness. In his new book, A Burst of Conscious Light, Andrew integrates extensive scientific research from three seemingly unrelated fields of study, quantum mechanics, near-death experiences, and the Shroud of Turin, to reveal the pitfalls and perils of artificial intelligence and he addresses the fundamentally flawed thinking that underlies it. Drawing on his work as one of the leading experts on the Shroud of Turin, as well as research by scientists from NASA and Los Alamos, Andrew shows how the image on the Shroud could only have been produced by a flash of light as intense as a nuclear explosion, a burst of light that occurred after the body was in the tomb. Sharing medical evidence of consciousness in people declared clinically dead, he shows how the light of consciousness evidenced by the shroud is also a consistent feature of most near-death experiences. Dr. Silverman is a medical doctor with a background in physics, and for more than 30 years, he's been conducting research on the mind-matter continuum, near-death experiences, and the shroud. He's presented his findings in peer-reviewed scientific papers and at international scientific conferences. He lives in Buckinghamshire, England. His new book, is a burst of conscious light, near-death experiences, the Shroud of Turin, and the limitless potential of humanity. Dr. Andrew Silverman, welcome to Conspiracy Unlimited. 
Thank you for having me on the show. My pleasure. I'd like to begin by discussing what it means to be human. And you cite in the book a recent study at Oxford University uh, dealing with artificial intelligence and, and replicating the workings of the human brain. The study was called Whole Brain Emulation, a Roadmap. Tell me a little bit about that study. What were they trying to do? Uh, well, that study itself wasn't actually, I don't believe that one was at, at Oxford, um, but uh, what they were looking into the possibility of whether a human mind could be emulated uh, by uh, artificial intelligence. Now, you see, this is uh, one of the main themes in my book, is whether such a thing is possible, and if not, why not, and what are the implications for our species if that is what people are aiming towards. Now, where Oxford University and Cambridge University, both in, in England, are, are relevant uh, in this, is that in the Oxford University, there's the Future of Humanity Institute, and in Cambridge University, the, Cambridge, the Center for the Study of Existential Risk, which are both looking into the what might be possible threats to human existence and what they what they came out with is that although of course there are dangers from climate change from nuclear war or uh, through uh, germ warfare so many things that could cause human annihilation one of the most likely threats that they feel is likely to cause the extinction of the human race is unanticipated consequences of technology. And amongst these is the dangers of artificial intelligence. You see, uh, when you're programming a, a computer, a machine, a robot, to uh, it could be done with the best intentions, but you're programming it to protect people. And you say, for example, prevent human suffering. Well, what many scholars have said is that a machine trying to think just simply logically without any sense of conscience or meaning or, or purpose, deeper purpose, if it's going to prevent human suffering, the simplest way to ensure that there's never any human suffering is to wipe out the human race. So there are, are all sorts of dangers through, for example, these autonomous weapons and so on uh, that, uh, that could lead to very serious danger for mankind. And the particular one that I was addressing in, uh, in the book in that part about the uploading is the question of whether it's even possible to upload the human mind. You see, I argue in the book that we are not made of information, that a mind is something that can perceive information, which is very different from being just a string of ones and zeros, if you like. Right. A, so, tape, rec a tape recorder uh, can receive information, but the tape recorder is just, is not conscious uh, other than the fact that there are, you know, it's recording vibrations, but it's not, there's no awareness there. Exactly right. You've put it very well. And in fact, uh, there was a book written by a very learned scholar from Oxford University in 1989 called The Emperor's New Mind that was talking about the, you know, this, you know, like with the emperor's new, new suit, everyone says it's wonderful, but actually he hasn't got a suit. And this is 
the, the way that many people think that it is with, with artificial intelligence, that people haven't actually considered properly whether there's actually a mind there. And as you quite rightly say, a tape recorder or a book can, can contain information, but they can never be conscious. And so I, I believe it's madness to think that we could in some way upload our minds into a machine and that machine would then be us, that we would be conscious in that machine. And the danger is that people believing that, that they can continue in machines in that way will think, oh, we don't need these fragile, uh, puny biological humans anymore because they last for a certain number of decades and then they're gone. But we can make these rep self-replicating robots and put upload our minds into them and then that's us but it's not us you see and then we we've got the human beings would have nowhere to be born because you can't be born to a machine right and and the transhumanist movement people like ray kurzweil talk about achieving immortality by sort of re-sleeving our consciousness uh, uploading it as you say so digital immortality but as you point out in a burst of conscious light it's they're misguided because it's all predicated on a total misunderstanding of what consciousness is. So what what is consciousness? What is your definition and, and where do you think it resides? That's such a wonderful question. And as I address this question in the book, how does one define consciousness? Because whenever one gives a, a definition of anything, it's always done relatively to to something else. So, for example, if you're describing uh, what the about the color blue or so, or something like that, you will refer people to say, "Oh, it looks like the sky." Well, if you've never seen the sky or you don't know what that looks like, then how do you know what what blue is? So, our usual definitions are, are based on material sensory experience, and we're always they're always related to the contents of our perception. Uh, what we see, what we hear, and what we feel and smell and taste and so on. Uh, and that's what we describe when we're defining something, whereas consciousness is something totally different to that. Consciousness is the room, the space, if you like, in which those experiences, those perceptions happen. And so it's not possible to define it in terms of the contents of our perception. And yet, although we can't define what it is, Everyone who is conscious knows what it is because they, they are it. They are consciousness. They are awareness. Every human being is awareness and they know what it is to be aware. But you can't put a, a definition of that in machine code, if you like, for the very simple reason that a machine can't experience can't experience anything because it can never be conscious. So in terms of under, uh, defining what consciousness is, one can only refer the, the listener, the reader, or any human being to the look at their own experience. And they see within their experience all of the contents and then look back and say, those contents exist within my my perception. So my perception perception is bigger than those contents. A good friend of mine once got me to, to, to look up at the, the night sky and see all the, the, the hundreds of billions of stars that you can see there, the many billions of light years away, some of them, and all the galaxies and so on. And it's amazing to think that all of those things that you're seeing all exist within your mind's eye. So your mind is bigger than all of that. It's bigger than the sky. It's bigger than the universe. That is amazing to think about. 
in a, a burst of conscious light, you address three seemingly disparate subjects. The, the, the first is quantum mechanics and the role of consciousness uh, of the observer. Uh, the second is the near-death experience. And the third is the image on the Shroud of Turin. And you demonstrate how all three of these subjects, while seemingly disparate areas, are in fact related and ultimately demonstrate the limitless potential of humanity. So let's start with the Shroud. If you could, uh, this is something I've talked about many, many times, uh, but there may be some out there still not very familiar with this remarkable piece of woven limit, uh, linen. So just give a brief description of what this, uh, this Shroud of Turin is all about, what it looks like and, and what image is on the Shroud. Certainly. Well, it's a 14 foot by, by 4 foot roughly length of, of linen cloth, uh, which has on it several markings, the most significant of which are uh, human blood stains, which have been forensically studied and been found to be human blood. And it tells uh, the, the pattern of the stains and the, and the serum around them tells a, a story of that can be read by a, a forensic pathologist looking at the cloth and it's been discovered that this cloth once wrapped the recently deceased body of a man who had been who had been tortured he had been whipped by two two assailants and he had had a cap of sharp objects placed upon his head uh, such as thorns may have been for example and he had been crucified. He'd been crucified through the, the feet and also, th interestingly, through the wrists. Now, this is important because if you, you look at, for example, medieval art and so on, it's always depicted that the, that the nails went through the hands. But we know they must have gone through the wrists. And we have known this for, for just over about 100 years only uh, after this was studied by, by anatomists and, it, and pathologists and it was found that the hands wouldn't have been able to take the weight of the body. So a forger, if, if, if it's people want to have the, the theory that this was made by a medieval forger, he would actually have to have ripped and crucified someone and uh, crucified them through the through the wrist first to just to make the just to make the blood stains. And they nobody in, in those times even knew that the crucifixion was through the wrists. Now, the even more important on there is a, there's a very faint sepia-toned image of a, of a man. Now, when, when we're talking about the Shroud, I should just get one thing out of the way because some people may have heard that in around 30 years ago there was a report that was published in a very respected journal called Nature. Uh, which purported to show through radiocarbon dating that the that the shroud was was medieval in origin. Now, I was a I was a student at the at the time that that came out, and I was doing a science degree as during my uh, medical degree, and I so I used to read Nature each week. So I was actually saw this this. Uh, 
journal when it came out and something interested me in the the table of of the actual raw data they was a discrepancy because the different labs had dated the the small samples that were taken from the same patch of cloth and they had come out with statistically different ages for them that would be were beyond what you would expect from chance so there seemed to be some variation in apparent age of the cloth even within the tiny sample that was studied and since then there was some great work done by uh, a couple in the states called Sue Benford and, and Joe Marino who who discovered that the corner of the, the cloth that was taken for carbon dating had been one of the most damaged through through the history of the shroud, and it had actually been repaired. It had been there had been a reweave done, incorporating so that the the sample that was sent to the radiocarbon labs was the majority of the of the of the fibers in that were actually much more modern than the, the shroud itself. It wasn't representative of the of the whole cloth. Now, there was a, a scientist at Los Alamos called Raymond Rogers, who, um, when he first heard about the research of Benford and Marino, he said he, he was actually one of the original team of scientists who had researched the shroud. So he still had some samples left from near the radiocarbon area and from elsewhere on the cloth. And so his first reaction to hearing what they were saying was anger almost if you like saying um i well i've got the material to prove these people wrong in five minutes and what he actually did was he tested parts of the the sample from near the carbon dating area and from elsewhere on the shroud and he said i set out to prove them wrong i've actually ended up proving them right and he he wrote up a, a, a paper in a respected peer-reviewed journal called thermochemica acta about his chemical findings that the sample that was taken for radiocarbon dating was not representative of the rest of the cloth. And you know, even the, one, the current uh, lead researcher of the Oxford radiocarbon dating unit, who was he was a junior researcher at the time of the dating, and, and I believe now uh, runs the the lab. He says that, the, that despite what the radiocarbon seem to show that much more research needs to to be done on this what he called this intriguing cloth because there's so much other evidence that that suggests it may have exactly. been much older now my uh, my lovely bride uh, was an archaeologist mm -hmm. and um one of the things she's always said is if if you have a carbon dating that's out of line with all the rest of the evidence you don't throw out the rest of the evidence you 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 retest the the carbon dating uh, and if you look at the linen, I mean, the, the weave of the linen, linen is particular to first century Jerusalem. Uh, you know, you've talked about how the image on the shroud mirrors in such detail the gospel account of the crucifixion, uh, right down to the, you know, the, uh, the, the broken uh, leg, which, or the fact that his leg wasn't broken, but the Roman soldiers would break a crucifixion victim's legs in order to hasten death. Well, Jesus was already dead, so they didn't need to break his leg. Uh, the other interesting thing is you were you were mentioning the the um, the nails did not go through the palm; they went through the wrists, mm -hmm. and uh, the the thumbs on the on the image are not visible because they're tucked under. Talk to me about the significance of that. Well, uh, for many years, many people have said that this may have been because the the nail 
was uh, was actually uh, went through the median nerve, which goes through the hand, and and whether that may have caused the the thumb position to be to be different. I actually through various other reasons and and after having heard a paper that was presented by uh, an American physician called uh, Dr. Gilbert Lavoy, I actually believe that the that the man of the shroud at the that there were two thing two events here. One was the the formation of the blood stains, which happened by a very simple process uh, from basically a, a, a dead body laid flat on its back and with the the shroud uh, wrapped around it. So he was laying on his back on the on one aspect of the cloth and then it was folded over the top of his head and and down over the rest of him and then the the stains formed but we just before i i I, sorry i digressed onto the the topic of the carbon dating i was about to talk about the the actual image of the man on the cloth so if i may talk a little bit more about that to put this in context it's basically a very faint sepia toned image that you can just make out of the front and the back of the man which corresponds roughly to in most parts to to the bloodstains and i'll come back to that why it doesn't correspond completely to them in a moment now for for hundreds of years it was thought that that that's just it was just a, a faint image until the photography was developed in the 19th century and uh, somebody called Secondo Pia took a a photograph of the shroud and he when he looked at his photographic negative plate as it obviously this was a long time before digital photos one for your younger listeners in in those (laughs) in those days um, the one had to take a negative first and then uh, which was all the tones are, are reversed so everything that's bright will look dark and everything that's dark will look bright on a on a negative so he saw the the uh, photographic negative plate and it said that he nearly dropped it in shock because the photographic negative if you look at a photographic negative of the shroud and there are uh, um, the images in in my book kindly reproduced by by permission from uh, Barry Schwartz there are you can see that the photographic negative it looks like a, a photograph. A positive, and, the, yeah. A positive, because the the actual image itself is like a photographic negative. Now, In other words, is, the image on the shroud is a negative, and when he took a picture of it, yes. you know, two pe- people who remember their math, two negatives equal a positive. So he was, that the image on the shroud is a negative. Would you describe it as an x-ray? Uh, I, I wouldn't personally describe it as an X-ray, but it has certain properties that that are similar to to a photographic negative. I would just put it like that: that right. there's a re- reversing of uh, uh, of light and dark. And again, why would a, a forger do that? Some people say, well, the forger, um, the, the uh, so-called forger, was. Um, actually taking a, a photograph using a camera obscura. Well, um, again, going back to, uh, I mentioned Barry Schwartz earlier, he, he's a professional photographer and he um, was part of the, the team of scientists that went in 1978 to, to study the shroud. He wrote a paper on, on this, which you can find on, on his website, shroud.com, uh, in which he 
looks at this hypothesis, could the shroud have been a, a photograph? Well, because people say, oh, well, there were the raw materials were, were there uh, even in medieval times to make a photograph. But he points out the raw materials were there to, to make microwave ovens and <laughs> nuclear bombs as well. It doesn't mean that they actually made them. And why is the first recorded photograph in the 19th century if there was some, you know, amazing uh, person who was able to develop that technology and just did it once, just for the just for the shroud image, and and he, they, this this forger would have had to to crucify someone as well to to get the forensic evidence. But the the key thing it seems to me though is that as well as the photographic negative properties, it was discovered by Dr. Jan, John Jackson, who uh, was the sort of founder of, of the STIRP team, the team of scientists who went there in, in 1978. He discovered using some uh, technology that uh, was available even in the 1970s called an image intensifier, which basically looks for uh, distance information from from uh, an image and it had been used for studying x-rays and and so on more of my conversation with dr andrew silverman when conspiracy unlimited returns every town has a dark side this is andrew fitzgerald from the every town podcast where every single week we dive into insane and mysterious true crime stories most of which you've never heard of Stories like the bizarre disappearance of Tyler Davis in Columbus, Ohio, a 29-year-old father trying to find his way back to his hotel when he disappeared and was never heard from again, and Elizabeth Shelf from Lugoff, South Carolina, who was abducted from her driveway by a madman and taken to his underground bunker in the woods. And we give you all the details you're interested in hearing about without any fluff or fillers, because ain't nobody got time for that. We cover everything from psychopaths to poltergeists. So go check out the Everytown podcast because every town, no matter how nice it may seem, has a dark side. I want to tell you about something I discovered recently called Carbon 60. I call it the Miracle Molecule. Now, you might remember an interview I did recently with a researcher, Chris Burris, who's looking to help people who experience pain, inflammation, loss of sleep, or lost mental acuity with his new C60 company, C60Evo.com. He has a product which is a consumable form of Carbon 60 called ESS60 that's been proven in peer-reviewed, published research to extend the lifespan of test rats by 90% while allowing them to live tumor-free. That's pretty amazing. Those rats were given the C60Evo.com formula. The formula is a powerful antioxidant, 172 times more powerful than vitamin C, and it's known to be a powerful anti-inflammatory. C60 is based on Nobel Prize winning chemistry. I highly recommend ESS60. The mighty Aphrodite and I take a tablespoon every morning and we're both pain-free and sleeping better than ever. Discover the benefits of Carbon 60. I call it the miracle molecule, ESS60, from C60Evo.com. Now, make sure to use the coupon code RS1SPEC. That's RS1SPEC. Buy today at C60Evo.com. That's C60Evo.com. 
And don't forget the code RS1SPEC. This product has not been assessed by the FDA and is not intended to diagnose, treat, or cure. If you have a medical concern, please consult your healthcare provider. Theoretical physicists say that there is as many as 12 hyperdimensions. Here are just three of them. Conspiracy Unlimited. Conspiracy Unlimited. Conspiracy Unlimited. Pretty cool, huh? Uh, here's an extra one. Conspiracy Unlimited. Hey, how about one more? Conspiracy Unlimited. And the great thing is we have six hyperdimensions left. Conspiracy Unlimited. Five. Or something like that. I'll ask Richard later. And we are back with Dr. Andrew Silverman, and his new book is called A Burst of Conscious Light, Near-Death Experiences, The Shroud of Turin, and the Limitless Potential of Humanity. So we were talking about this uh, remarkable piece of linen cloth, the most studied artifact perhaps in history, and uh, this group called STIRP. Um, were examining it, and they were using some equipment developed by NASA, and they discovered, I think you described it as distance coding in there, which tells us what. Yes, I, actually, I, I understand that the, although there were some of the scientists there uh, were had worked with, with NASA and Jet Propulsion Laboratory and so on, the actual image intensifier, I don't think was actually um, developed by NASA. But, ah. but basically, um, what they discovered was that if you take an ordinary photograph and you put it through uh, through a image intensifier, then what you see is a random set of peaks and troughs that don't correspond to the actual three-dimensional relief shape of, say, a, a human face or a human form. But when you do the same thing to the shroud image, then it comes out in relief at you and you see that the the basically the intensity of the image is dependent on how close the, the shroud was to the body that was wrapped within it, which is not what you would expect to find if, for example, someone had been doing a camera obscura technique, and it was which would be based on light reflected from the body. The amazing conclusion, which is very difficult to get away from, is that it appears that it, the image was formed by something that emanated from the body of the man itself. Now, the, the sepia discoloration of the surface fibrils is a very much a surface phenomenon. It's one five thousandth of a millimeter in thickness. Which, so very, which very rules thin. out paint because paint would yes. soak into the lower fibrils. Exactly right, yes. And um, so uh, the actual nature of it, when you study it chemically, it's not anything that's been added to the cloth, but it's actually an what's called oxidation and dehydration of these surface fibrils, very similar to how paper, you know, old books uh, turn yellowish, especially when they're exposed to sunlight. And I believe this might have been one of the, the things that got people thinking and, and led to a team of scientists at the Atomic Energy Institute in, in Italy, in Frascati, led by Dr. Paolo Di Lazzaro. They then said, okay, well, let's see, since the change in the surface fibrils of the cloth is similar to what happens uh, when paper is exposed to sunlight, uh, then they actually tried exposing linen to short, intense bursts of very high intensity, very short duration bursts of ultraviolet laser. And they found that, that actually at a, a certain uh, level of the the laser for a certain very short duration, you could replicate similar at a microscopic level similar changes 
to the uh, to the surface fibrils of a linen cloth that made similar changes to what we see on the shroud. Now, no, no, okay. If I could suggest- just jump in, if I could just sure. jump in, uh, Dr. Silverman, just so for people uh, to understand here, this distance coding. Basically, it means that the image on the shroud, yes, you, you, and we'll come back to the, the light emanating from the body itself, but basically what, it, what you're telling us is that it's a three-dimensional image on the shroud. Now, how, do you, how, could, a, how could a forger do that? Yes, and, and why would they bother to, to do it, even if they knew how to do it, if the technology to discover what they had done would only become available 600 years later for, for us to realize that they, that, they had, that they had achieved this. Right, so we yes. have a negative image, a three-dimensional image. So this forger, let's assume, had to have you know that ability. Uh, keep in mind, if you look at medieval paintings, they don't even understand perspective back then. Mm. So then we have someone with an incredible knowledge of physiology, uh, who has an incredible knowledge of botany. You mentioned, uh, I believe, pollen samples that were a- around the head, which would correspond to uh, the crown of thorns. Uh, uh, so just an incredible, you know, uh, this person would have had to have, have been 10 times, 100 times, 1,000 times smarter than Leonardo da Vinci. Uh, okay, yes. so let's get back to this. So in order to replicate this, they were able to use use a laser. And I think that the, the figure you quote in the book is 34,000 billion watts of energy. Is that correct? Of, uh, of power, actually. Ah. What's it, because So uh, watts are relate to the rate of transfer of energy. Of course, if it had been a huge amount of energy that formed the image, then that would have vaporized the cloth and probably the tomb and, and everything that was around it. So but it's it's power relates to the rate of transfer of energy, and that's why with the uh, experiments with the ultraviolet laser, it's very very short duration, tiny fractions of a, much less than one millionth of a second even, um, and and so within that short duration, it's like a sudden burst of 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 ultraviolet light but but they're not suggesting that it could have been done technologically because we couldn't do it technologically now even with 21st century science we wouldn't be able to to produce a whole image of a of a human body they're just making can you can you put this in in perspective for us for like 34,000 billion watts um i mean how much does a nuclear plant produce or a bomb a nuclear bomb yeah, and, and well, I'm not sure nuclear bomb. That's that may be um, probably uh, up there with it. But uh, but of course, in a nuclear power plant, they're trying to avoid there being a, a, a runaway chain reaction, um, and the actual power output of those is is less than that. So um, yes, it's less than the. The, the the power output of a nuclear plant is less than the power output that would have that would have formed the image on the shroud if indeed it did form as I believe the evidence shows looking at the the peer-reviewed work that has been done by these scientists in in, in Frascati at the Atomic Energy Institute then you know there's no way that we'd be able to to do this technologically even today let alone sort of in you know the 13th or 14th century. And is 
would there be any trace of that radiation still on the, if we knew what to look for, on the shroud or within the tomb, which is supposedly the the the, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, where the, the tomb is believed to have been located? Would there be any radiation there still? Um, if it had been a burst of ultraviolet light, that wouldn't necessarily, in fact, it wouldn't really leave any radiation effect because it is once it's as soon as it's formed and it's uh, that ultraviolet light that changes the cloth is absorbed by the cloth and the energy from it is makes a chemical change happen then then it's no longer there if you like it so there wouldn't necessarily be a physical uh thing that you would be able to measure but the the shroud image itself may be the the only physical evidence that we definitely have of this event so a sudden burst of ultraviolet light, 34,000 billion watts of, uh, of energy from a dead body. Mm. That's what we're, we're left with, essentially. Yes. And the interesting thing is, again, uh, as I realized after attending the presentation, as I said, he, he presented, Dr. Gilbert Lavoie presented at the same conference where I presented actually at the Atomic Energy Institute in, in 2010. And he pointed out something that I, I have to confess I'd never occurred to me before. But if you actually look at the, at the image on the shroud, then you see that the the, the image of the back of the body there's no flattening of the of the buttocks or the calves and the hair is is not hanging down behind the body as you would expect if the man had been laying flat it looks as though it's actually hanging down on his on his shoulders now what this suggests is that at the moment that the shroud that when the blood stains formed the body was was wrapped in the in the shroud and was was laying flat on on its back but then somehow something happened that meant that the body became vertical and not vertical as in standing because if you look at the feet they're not in a standing position vertical and suspended in the air and at that moment there was this sudden burst of, of probable, probably a burst of ultraviolet light, we think, from looking at the evidence. We were talking about the, the image on the shroud and how it appears. The image was transferred to the linen while the body was levitating, essentially, vertically yes. in, in, mm. in midair. Yeah. Did and you want to... Yeah thing oh. is that, that there's so much evidence, I, I haven't mentioned it yet, but there is so much evidence that points to the man whom the shroud wrapped having been the historical Jesus of Nazareth, because for several reasons there was the uh, the pollen was uh, shows evidence of it having been around the environs of Jerusalem in March or April. It was he was the man was a victim of Roman crucifixion. Who uniquely Jesus had the was said to have had the cap of thorns, and you mentioned about the lack of broken limbs. Uh, but but also the fact that the body hadn't putrefied, that that he had been able to be buried quickly and in a, a man according to the traditional Jewish burial methods meant that that dates the the man's death somewhere between the AD or CE 6 and 66 and that there's various reasons for that to do with the, the politics of what was going on in Judea at that time 
which I which I go into in the book. And uh, so it does look like it was he, that he was the man uh, whose image we see on the on the cloth. And the, the fascinating thing is that these two things that we're talking about, one of the, the when we now look at the, this cloth carefully using modern 20th and 21st century science, we see that it appears that there was a sudden burst of light from this man. And also it appears that when that happened, he was levitating. Now, when you look at the reports of the life of Jesus of Nazareth. There was, for example, the walking on the water. There was the time that he was seen to rise above the ground. And when he was seen while he was still alive to be shining like, like the sun, it's described. Now, it's fascinating that, again, if it had been a forger, he wouldn't know that that that, that this would be able to be derived from looking at the cloth now, and and or that we would have been able to. But it's fascinating that that these similar things happened to after he had died that also tie in to the same the same individual and right. in the book i explain how such a thing might have been possible and we will get to that but so there are three sort of paths in terms of trying to understand how that image got on the shroud and as you point out the, the materialists or the empiricists would say well we can explain this through uh, physical and chemical process. Uh, the the religious uh, would say, well, this was a miracle. This is something supernatural. We can't possibly uh, understand it in terms of science. But you have a, you you're proposing a third way. Absolutely right. Um, because my point is that the term supernatural is often used to refer to either extrasensory perception or mind over matter. But as I point out in the book, you can make a very simple case that I believe a child can understand that actually all if you read it, you'll, you'll see what I mean. Or if the readers, if the listeners read it, all perception is not from a sense, just like a camera has similar to an eye, but the camera doesn't experience seeing anything, and yet we do. So it's not the brain that sees, it's the mind that sees, which is beyond the sense. And if we have free will, then that means our will is is dis- deciding what our bodies do when we make a decision and we act upon that decision, and that's mind over matter. So if extrasensory perception and mind over matter are part of our everyday experience, and there are some scientists who I allude to their work in the book, some leading uh, quantum physicists who point out that that free will is real and that there, there's evidence for it being real. If that's the case, then mind over matter is totally natural. So we don't need to have such a word even as supernatural. Right, right. You talk about, you know, the natural world and, and, and um, how we have to understand where the mind fits into the natural world. Uh, and, and yet... You point out this this fascinating paradox uh, when we're trying to understand the role of the mind or the observer in the natural world. Let's talk a little bit about, you know, the empirical view of the world, which doesn't allow for the mind. Yes. Well, basically, this is something that Erwin Schrodinger, one of the founders of quantum theory, pointed out, that the empirical model of a way of looking at, at the world if you if you do that basically you're describing your experiences the content of your experience and you're re- removing from the discussion that which can that which can perceive it and so because you've done that by definition as it were then in the empirical view of the world there is no mind and yet we we know through our constant experience all the time that 
that there is one. And so there is a sort of contradiction that Schrodinger pointed out in the empirical view of the world, which is the reason why some uh, people believe, some people who follow what I would call not science, but scientism, that would say that any notion of there being a mind that can influence a matter is dualism, but they are the ones that have divided the mind away from the physical world by seeing the physical world as only consisting of the contents of our perception and forgetting that the perceiver exists. Right. They, they divide the natural world into two parts, the observed mm. and the observer. That's implicit to the empirical worldview, and yet at the same time, they deny the existence of the observer. I want to talk about mind and matter. And again, mm. the, the empiricist would say that since the mind is the product of the brain, and you describe it as, you know, this gelatin lump or gelatinous lump, that's what the brain is essentially. And, and the empiricist would believe that that is the sum total, you know, that's the mind. Mm. Uh, and since the brain is physical matter, the mind is influenced by matter and not the other way around. So yes. t talk to me about how the mind, in fact, does influence matter. Indeed. Well, this was something that as soon as quantum theory was developed, it became apparent that consciousness has to be fundamental to even to the existence of matter, that rather than mind being a product of matter, it's amazingly, the truth is, it's the reverse. Matter is the product of mind. And two leading quantum physicists and Nobel laureates, Erwin Schrodinger and Max Planck, were both interviewed by a reporter, I believe his name was, was Sullivan, in uh, the 1930s by a, a leading British newspaper called The Observer. And each of them went on the record to say when they were asked about consciousness that they believe consciousness is fundamental. It's not a product of matter and not a product of anything else. It is the basically part of the fundamental nature, the, the, the beginning and the nature of existence itself. Now, in fact, Eugene Wigner made the point that, in fact, there's nothing that we know of in science where an influence is only one way. If, if, a influence, if A is able to influence B, then B must be able to influence A. And so he actually put in his, in his book uh, about his reflections on, on philosophy and science and so on, that, that he believed that mind over matter is real. And also there's a professor of, at the University of Stanford, professor of physics called Andre Linder, who wrote a leading textbook on something called inflationary cosmology. And he actually, in, in that book, he also says that, that he believes that consciousness may be something completely, completely fundamental and that we're, we're narrowing ourselves much too much as scientists by not considering that possibility that consciousness may be fundamental. And there's an interesting story that when he told his publisher, when his publishers saw that he'd included that in his book, they said, you know, you might lose the respect of your, of your colleagues and readers if you leave that in the book. And he said, if I don't include it, I'll lose my self-respect because he could see that it's self-evident that consciousness is not just a a string of ones and zeros. There's no way you can write it as a computer program and make something that will wake up and be aware and, and be someone rather than something. And that's the danger of, of 
people's of the blindness that's leading us towards thinking about things like transhumanism uploading and so on is that if you if you put a, a string of ones and zeros which are derived from your brain or from your connectome or whatever it is that they're they're taking from it's always going to be just information it's never going to be you that's not how you continue but there is a way to continue in fact you have it naturally as a human being and perhaps what the, we see on the shroud and what the evidence that is garnered from all the near-death experiences that people have and their perception of the light that they see in the near-death experiences as being all compassion and, and all wisdom is showing us how we could, a way to, of living in which we could achieve a natural continuation without without technology i don't want to get too far too far i don't want to get too far ahead because we will come back to that in this in the second hour but um i just want to drill down a little bit further on uh, how mind can control matter there's that classic example of the i believe it's called the is it the double slit experiment indeed can you tell us a little bit about that in in very sort of rudimentary terms Sure. Well, basically, the double slit experiment is a is an experiment that that gets to the heart of the issues, the the apparent paradox of of quantum mechanics. Because basically, until you actually observe the electron or the photon, then it doesn't have an actual location. It's not a thing. It's it's all as as Heisenberg said. The quantum realm of atoms and so on is a world of possibilities, of potentialities, rather than of of things or, or objects. And it's only when you actually observe it that you that you make it take on a, a fixed reality that's taken on as a result of that observation. And as as Eugene Wigner and several other people, including von Neumann. London, Bauer, the various other quantum physicists, and and more more latterly, Andre Linder have have pointed out, is that at the end of the at the end of the chain of observation, it's not good enough just to have a machine that watches it because then the machine could both see it and not see it at the same time. You need to have a conscious observer because it's only in consciousness that we are never both things at once we never we never see that the electron is here but or at there at the same time it always whenever we see it somewhere it's always in in one place or or the other so in other words the the simple act of observing these subatomic particles changes their behavior well in, indeed in fact it can actually work through the something called the delayed choice experiment. You can set up a, a scenario whereby how you observe something now can change the past of the thing that you're that you've observed, or at least give it a past. It's not only making the present real; it's making the past real. Because until you uh, actually observe it, then the history of where it was before you observed it is has not happened yet. Oh my! It's, it's amazing. <laughs> that mm. is well. Then that brings us around to the subject of time being the, being the product of the mind, and therefore the mind. Uh, well, I'll get you to explain it because you're the expert here. But the the, the concept of uh, the notion of the present, the now, and how mm. that is a creation of the mind. Talk to me about yes. that. 
again, I mean, I've, I've mentioned shredding already, but this was a point that he made in his seminal work called uh, What is Life and Mind and Matter was the addendum to that, that um, basically con mind, consciousness is always now that whenever we are, we're always now, and people think, oh, but I have memories of the past and plans for the future. Yes, you do. And that where are those memories and plans? Well, they're now. You're experiencing them now, and we're always now. It says that the present is the only thing that has no end, that, that mind is always now, and therefore, um, without the mind, there is no need for there to be a now, that the equations of, of, of physics that relate to... Uh, the material world, they describe it as though all of history and future are all there together, but it's only in consciousness, as, as uh, Professor Roger Penrose pointed out, it's only for, for mind, for consciousness, that time needs to flow at all. There's no flow of time in a material system unless uh, the, the appearance of a flow of time is something that happens, that happens within consciousness. So Schrodinger pointed out that time is a result of consciousness, and therefore that if that which consciousness has made cannot make consciousness. If we've made time, then time can't make us, and time can't time can't end us. So, therefore, he he said, I, I propose the indestructibility of mind by time. Fantastic. And this is the point I make in the book that that we act. That's the amazing thing as sentient beings is we have no beginning. So I don't, I don't suggest that we were created, and I don't suggest in any way that, that we as sentient beings could ever be manufactured. I believe we are, that the universe has a beginning, but we don't, that even without physical universes, sentient being is there, and that physical universes are what happens when sentient being becomes limited and therefore separate so that we take on individuality space and time are just in other words for the for the separation of points and this is why i believe people like jesus and the buddha and muhammad and all the other great teachers said that we should all love our neighbor as ourselves that we should that there that we should recognize that fundamentally there is no there is no separation except the separation that we have made. And that's what, by empathy, compassion, and so on, the, the way of living that, that Jesus, for example, demonstrated, that might be the way that we might be able to return to be that light that people see in their death experiences, which may be the same light that formed the image on the shroud. Okay, before I dim the lights in my little studio beneath the stairs... I'll be back in a flash, uh, no pun intended, to fill you in on an upcoming episode. If you want to support my work here at Strange Planet, please consider becoming an official donor. It's easy. Just go to patreon.com forward slash strange planet. There are several donation tiers to choose from, from a dollar per month to $50 a month. New donors at the $10, $20, and $50 per month tier receive a free mug from my Strange Planet shop. Donors in the $20 tier also have their names appear on a crawl 
during the YouTube live stream of my weekly radio program, The Conspiracy Show. And donors in the $50 tier receive a special on-air thank you on my radio program. Whatever you give, your support helps keep my radio program and this podcast going. Help me pursue the truth wherever it leads. Patreon.com forward slash Strange Planet. Thank you, and God bless. Coming up next time, part two of my two-part conversation with Dr. Andrew Silverman on near-death experiences, the Shroud of Turin, and the mind-matter continuum. The matter of our bodies is frozen light, but we are as sentient beings with, with awareness and with free will. We are of the light itself. Our nature is of the light because the body is frozen light, but that body dies and we have evidence from the death experiences that the consciousness continues beyond that. So, so that's not us. That's just the, the shell that we're in and that we leave behind. Until then, I'm Richard Serrett. So long for now. A new Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett drops every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at ConspiracyUnlimitedPodcast.com. Blow your mind. That is all for now. Oh, and remember to share and give a five-star review because we have huge egos and need love. We're like cats. We need... We need constant petting. <laughs>